0: You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Um, so so this will be our last uh, sermon for a while um, in, the, in the Gospel of Matthew. We'll pick up and, and finish in, in five or six weeks, but we're going to enter into, on Wednesday, a series of, Um, going through the Book of Lamentations in in five weeks. We'll introduce that on Wednesday. So I'd highly encourage you uh, to come and and celebrate Ash Wednesday with us um, and and experience the fullness of the Lenten season as we prepare for Easter. Um, And after this morning, we're going to be really looking forward to Easter. Um, Before we hop into the text, um, set it up a little bit. Over the past five chapters in the Gospel of Matthew, Um, We've seen what is primarily the speech of Jesus, and in this discourse, there have been five different parables in in the five chapters, and in all of them, Jesus tells his disciples um, in a different parable about his imminent return, that that he will leave, but he will return, and he will judge his people. And, And then By the end of the chapter after our text this morning, we will see that Jesus will have been arrested and delivered to be crucified. But sandwiched in between those two things in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew shows our Lord moving from speaking in parables to providing a true and realistic picture of a future historical event. Um, so, So let us not be fooled that this text is is simile and metaphor, Um, this is our Lord telling us, gracefully warning us that this day is coming, that there will be a real historical event in which Jesus, the King of the universe, comes back to judge the quick and the dead. He says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a, shepherd, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. I just want to pause here and, and, and let us realize that, that this is a, is, is a terrifying and bone-shaking reality. When I first read this text, to prepare for this morning last week, my body shook. And and, and that's because I I had to face this reality that there will come a day when I will truly face-to-face meet my maker. I will have to give an account to the God of the universe. He's going to come in glory on a glorious throne with all of the angels with him, the angels that always in Scripture Say, do not fear to those who they appear to because they're terrifyingly glorious. This text shows us that history surely has a beginning and it has an end. It's not cyclical. And Jesus promises us that that the end of human history won't come with nuclear holocaust or an overwhelming amount of carbon emissions. It won't come with natural disaster, but it will come with the return of Jesus. He will end human history when he returns, and he will come in glory to judge. It says that all of the nations will be gathered. Can you imagine this? All of the nations? Elsewhere in scripture, it will say that that even on this day, he will call the dead out of their tombs to come before him for judgment. So, not just all of the current nations, but all of the nations throughout all of human history will come before the Lord with all of his angels around him, and he'll be on a glorious throne. And this is not Matthew writing um, some very like, powerful piece of literature. This is our Lord Jesus promising a future historical event. An event when all of the nations of all of the world throughout all of human history will be reduced down to two groups. The text will tell us that one group will inherit the kingdom of heaven and will enter into eternal life. And the text also tells us that the other group will be cast into fire for eternal punishment. And so this morning, if you are scared or you feel awkward at the thought of this, You're not wrong and you're not alone. This should make our hair stand up on the back of our necks. It should make us tremble. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the Lord, is what the author of Hebrews tells us. In this text, we will see both warning and calling, but we cannot miss the glorious promise of this text. The promise being that our Lord Jesus is going to return for his people. This is something we can count on. So as awkward and as scary and as fearful as it may be for us to wade into these waters of heaven, hell, and judgment, we must do so knowing that it is a reality we will face and that it is a beautiful thing that our Lord has gracefully made us aware of what we will be judged based upon on that day. Some of us in the room probably believe that God is a judgmental God who can't be loving. Uh, in the previous, um, a previous text in Matthew, Jesus offers the parable of the tenants. And in this parable, one of the tenants tells the master upon his return, after he did not produce any fruit with what he was given. He said to the master representing the Lord Jesus, he said, I knew you to be a hard man. Reaping where you did not sow. And that, that shows that some people believe that God is impossible to satisfy. I didn't do anything with it because I knew you to be a hard man. I knew that you reaped where you didn't sow. I knew that you gathered where you didn't scatter seed. You're insatiable. And some of us have this view of, of God and this view of our Lord Jesus And the result of that idea is apathy, it's sorrow, it's rebellion. God can't be pleased. That might be your cry. He can't judge and condemn people to hell and still be this loving God that Christians always say he is. Maybe that's that's your understanding this morning. And if that's where you sit this morning, I I ask that you'd stay with me. God being a judge is the only way in which the Christian who believes in justice can walk in freedom of mind, nonviolence, or resist seeking vengeance. The Lord will be the judge. He will be the perfect judge, and oh, I promise you, he will be a very loving judge. And some of you fall into a similar camp with a slightly different perspective. You believe in God as a loving God who in himself is love. And if God is love, you think, then he certainly would never judge or condemn. And and I also understand how this text could be incredibly difficult for you. Easy to dismiss. But I hope that you can see that God's love is so ferocious that he mustn't allow injustice. Mercilessness or self-centeredness in his people. Those things are unloving, and his perfect love calls for mercy not only from him, but also from the people that he will call his own. As we've read, we see that Jesus divided all of the nations into two groups as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. You see, a shepherd would allow goats and sheep to run and graze together in the pasture all day. But at the end of the day, he would separate them into different stalls, the sheep on one side, the goats on the other, and Jesus is painting this pastoral picture for his listeners that throughout history, he has allowed the righteous ones and those who are unrighteous to share the earth and to dwell together. But there will be a time to separate them into their respective eternal destinations. He goes on in verses 34 through 36, through 46, as Reed read earlier. Then the king will say to those on, the, on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. But then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. You cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And then they will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. At first glance upon this text, we could easily make the assumption that Jesus is going to come back and judge us based simply upon our works of serving the needy. Those invited in the text to share in the inheritance of the kingdom are those who had hearts of generosity, justice, and mercy. Those who fed the hungry, clothed the naked, visited the lonely. The people of heaven will be the people who lovingly served the world around them. Those who made the outcast and the needy feel loved. And so the obvious go-and-do calling of this text is to serve the needy. Who is hungry among you? Who is lonely? Who are the sick? You might think, if I can only serve them, then Jesus will have to invite me in. And it is true that we, as the people of God, must be a people who serve the needy. It's a non-negotiable. We must be a people who care for the outcast and who establish relationship with the criminal. But before we get carried away with a salvation based upon our works and our good deeds, we need to focus on two things in this text. First, the two groups are addressed as those who are blessed by my Father and those who are cursed. Cursed. And second, we need to see that the ultimate failure of the cursed was that in their rejection of the needy, they were in fact rejecting the King Jesus himself. Those who did the good works commended by the King were commended because in so doing they were serving the King. We cannot act as if this list of works of service to the needy are unimportant. But first, we have to understand that Jesus is not preaching that salvation will ultimately be a question of, were you good enough? Rather, salvation will be a result of the answer to the question, were you blessed by the Father, or did you reject the Son? It was pointed out to me earlier this week as I was preparing that the most important verse in this passage is actually not in this passage at all. But two verses later, Matthew 26, verse 2, records Jesus saying this, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. This is the lens through which we must view the judgment scene. Jesus was sacrificed for the forgiveness and remission of sin. Then he rose from the dead to give us power for a resurrected, eternal life. The gospel of grace and forgiveness of sins is the cornerstone of Christian belief. And it's the very reason that God became man and died a criminal's death. Those in the text described as being blessed by the Father are those who are followers of Christ with a true faith in him that results in true Christ-like works. Jesus' account of the last judgment does not nullify grace. It does quite the opposite in enforcing it. We are shown that there must be so much more to the Christian life than simply reciting a prayer, making a public profession, and being dipped in a pool of water. Jesus promises much more than the forgiveness of sins and eternal life in heaven after our death. He promises us a transformed life now, For those who trust in Christ, we are called to and empowered to live a life that is marked by Jesus, a life marked by love for others, selflessness, and mercy. In today's text, Jesus tells us that we will be judged based on our care for the needy, specifically the stranger, the naked, the the thirsty, the sick, and the prisoner. And in his life, Jesus not only experienced all of these forms of poverty of flesh, but he also redeemed poverty of flesh and spirit through his life, death, and resurrection. Care for the stranger? Well, Jesus was born into obscurity in a world that John tells us did not know him. And he died alone outside the gates of the city hung on a cross but he also redeemed the lot of the stranger as well. Ephesians 2.19 says of the people of God, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Care for the naked? On the cross, Jesus was stripped naked. The Roman soldiers cast lots for his garments. His body was marred and exposed in shame as he was executed. But he also redeemed the lot of those without pure clothes to wear before the Father in heaven. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 2 and 3, speak of the people of God groaning for their heavenly dwelling place like this. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. Or in Revelation 3.18, as Jesus counsels the church in Laodicea, he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be exposed. Care for the sick? Jesus was physically afflicted to the point of death and he took on the cursed disease of sin and wrath as he was crushed by the Father in the stead of ruined sinners. But he also healed the sick. Matthew 8, 16 says that that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Care for the prisoner? Jesus was seized by the authorities and put on trial as a criminal. He was condemned to death, mocked and alone, but he is also freedom for the slave to sin and the prisoner of his flesh. Galatians 4, 6 through 7 says, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Or Psalm 146, verse 7, which says the Lord sets the prisoner free. Care for the hungry? Jesus fasted in the desert for 40 days while being tempted by the devil. He was hungry last week in our text, and he approached a fig tree that bore no fruit for him to eat. But his flesh is also true food. John 6 says, uh, has Jesus saying this, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven and if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Care for the thirsty? As our Lord died on the cross, he cried out in anguish, I have thirst. But his blood is also true drink, and he offers living water. John 4, verses 13 and 14 say this. Jesus said to her, being the woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up for eternal life. Most of these texts speak about the spiritual realities of becoming a follower of Christ, the satisfaction of deep soul-level needs. But as we've seen throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus in his life cared physically for the needy. He provided food and drink. He healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind, and he built relationships with the outcast. So when Jesus tells us that we will be judged based on our care for the needy, He is calling us to care for people in situations that he has fully experienced. People like those who he cared for in his life. And situations for which he has fully created avenues of redemption. Even more, he has given us his very spirit to walk in the faithfulness required of us. As mentioned before, the judgment in this text isn't ultimately about the works done by those put on the right and those put on the left. The distinguishing feature is being blessed by the Father. To be blessed by the Father is to know, trust, and worship the Son, Jesus, with all of your life. The blessing of the Father is for those who are righteous according to what Jesus has done in living perfectly, dying for the forgiveness of our sins and being glorious gloriously resurrected over the power of sin and death in order that we might live. The good works are a result of the blessing, not the other way around. Jesus is reminding his disciples that true faith in him must yield true works of service to the needy. Likewise, those in the text that are condemned to hell are not condemned simply because they weren't generous enough. Or loving enough to the needy. They were condemned because they rejected Christ as they rejected the needy. And they weren't able to love the needy apart from experiencing the love of God through Christ. They were cursed from the beginning as a result of their sin, and they never trusted in the sacrificial Christ being cursed on the cross so that they might be blessed. As we mentioned last week, Jesus consistently teaches throughout Matthew that what is inside a person produces what comes out of them. Speech, actions, emotions, and thoughts are all a result of what the heart truly treasures and finds worthy of devotion. And if you're in your heart, you truly treasure the goodness of God and the loving Christ, then your life will result in goodness, charity, love, and sacrifice. If, however, your heart's throne is a seat for yourself, for personal pleasure, or the approval of others, your life will reflect your sinful self-centeredness. First, we must trust in Christ, cry out to him for mercy and forgiveness, and proclaim him as Lord. Only after this occurs can we bear the true fruit of faith in acts of mercy that will surely be judged when he returns. Jesus is calling us in this text to clothe the naked, to feed the hungry, water the thirsty, visit the lonely and the destitute. He's promising us that we will be judged according to whether or not we do those things. And the reality is that none of these needs can be known outside of relationship. You will never know that someone has physical or spiritual needs if you don't know they exist, engage with them in relationship. And give of your time and energy to them. At the end of the of the day, this call in the text is a call to make disciples. And care for our fellow disciples. We must build relationships with people to know their needs. We should clothe the naked in our midst. Clothing banks and personal gifts will help us clothe those without clothing. But we also must point people toward the work of Christ and the white clothes of salvation and purity he has for us to wear before the Lord in forgiveness. We must feed the hungry in our midst with physical food, but we cannot neglect those who are wasting away without having experienced the bread of life in relationship with God through Jesus. We must offer water to those who are thirsty, but we also have to show our co-workers and friends who are thirsty for a lasting identity that Jesus offers living water, which will quench their thirst for eternity. Let's go to prisons and juvenile institutions and visit the prisoner. Let's fight to end sex slavery and human trafficking in our city. But we also must establish relationship with those who are slaves to their sin and will die that way apart from the effective work of Jesus to redeem them and save them according to his gospel. Why must we do this? Because it's the natural response to the grace and love we have been given and shown by God. Because the very people we serve physically will also give an account on that day of judgment. And how can we expect them to turn and serve the needy brethren of Christ if we do not make known to them the truth of Christ? We cannot feed the hungry belly and not offer offer bread of life to starving souls. We must build relationships with those around us, both Christians and non-Christians, to know their needs. We must then invite them into gospel community of the church so that we can share with others the work of meeting their needs. And then we must share the gospel with the non-believer and believer alike so that the deepest needs of the human heart can be met. Maybe today you're hearing this, hearing the call of Jesus in this text and the promise of how he will judge and you came in thinking you were a believer but now you're beginning to realize that your life isn't yielding the fruits of justice, mercy, and love through disciple-making. Maybe you're in the room and you're trembling with fear at the thought of the judgment that is surely coming. Maybe you're hearing this and you've never trusted in Christ for salvation or worshiped him as Lord. But have relied solely on yourself to do good things. Maybe you've thought God to be impossible to please and you've come in in this morning having given up. Or maybe you're a believer in the room who is faithfully doing these things, but have somewhere along the way made it about you and your spiritual resume. The call this morning for every single one of us is the same. We must repent and believe the gospel. We must turn from our selfishness, our self-centeredness, our apathy, despair, or whatever else is preventing us from walking in faith that yields loving relationships and deeds toward the needy. And we must believe the gospel news that Christ in his death has provided for us a perfect righteousness. And given us his spirit to walk in obedience. We must believe that this is a graceful warning. And it's good news that our lives as Christians aren't reduced to saying a prayer and waiting to go to heaven, but that God, in his goodness and love toward his people, desires to transform our lives and give us eternal meaning in our everyday actions. We must know that this day is coming and that the stakes have never been higher all the while remembering that it isn't all up to us, but rather that God will give his people a true faith that yields true works, and he will empower us by his spirit of truth. So let us repent, believe, and respond by living lives with eternal significance, by the grace of our God and Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we admit that we need your help more than ever. We ask that you would make us both individually and corporately a people that respond to your love and grace toward us by loving and offering grace toward others with needs physical, spiritual, and emotional. We ask that we would be reconciled to you, God, through the work of Jesus, empowered by your Spirit to live lives of obedience so that on that day, we would be put on your right hand as those who have faithfully served you through service to the needy. We ask that this morning as we come and partake in the sacrament, that we would remember that our only hope to be able to live lives of obedience is a hope provided in your broken body and your shed blood. And we ask that as we enter into the Lenten season this week, in approach of Good Friday and Easter Sunday, that we would mourn our sin, that we would reflect on our mortality, but that we would turn to obedience in you. Save us, we pray. Amen. Amen.